At Designing the Robot Revolution, we have a mission to unpack the tools, methods, and trends influencing the work of creating wonderful automation, robotics, and AI. We want to understand how we can prepare ourselves, our listeners, and ideally the world for the paradigm shift that we found ourselves in the middle of due to increased computing power, exponential increase in the amounts of available data, and the blinding speed of development in machine learning. One way we can do this is by talking to people that work at disruptive companies and discuss with them what they have seen when automating processes and applying modern technology to solving human problems. Today, we will listen to Matthias Griff, the CTO and co-founder of Big Blue, a company that helps small sellers with warehousing and logistics so that they can compete with giants like Amazon on an equal footing. How have they automated processes to gain the ability to enable competition with the Silicon Valley giants? Sit back, relax, and enjoy. We started Big Blue four years ago now, um, and the mission has been relatively the same for these uh, last four years. Uh, we've just grown a lot since then. That's the only major difference. And our mission is really to give these um, logistics power to independent brands. And so when you look at the uh, retail industry, it's been completely overwhelmed by Amazon. Mm-hmm. So that's no surprise, right? And, uh, but, uh, since Amazon, uh, really grow, uh, grew, um, what also happened is that there was all these software companies that created tooling for independent brands to compete on a lot of different fronts. Mm. So, you know, usual suspects, but Shopify, uh, Stripe, right? Those are amazing mm-hmm. companies that you can, as an SMB, get the same, almost same experience that you would get as, um, Facebook or Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. And so our goal was to fill the logistics gap here because when we uh, went and talked to um, retailers, they, they told us we have Stripe, we have Shopify. But then uh, when it comes to, comes to the physical world, it's a huge pain. And this is our main uh, blocker for scale. What you almost had to do before, in, in, in if you had a brand and you wanted to sell something, you would have to rent physical building and you would have to hire someone or go there yourself and pick everything together so like how did you find that use case because it's it makes sense afterwards but it must have been some exploration involved right so um so this is one option and, and, and most brands, they start, start with that. They take an intern then that uh, picks and packs uh, packaging, etc. But then at some point, uh, you're growing out of the intern, right? And you need two interns, five interns, and it's, it's time to externalize. And so mm-hmm. what um, and still exists, but uh, what we are replacing is uh, small, smaller scale warehouses. So you would go to a regional place, um, maybe some guy that has... Uh, a thousand square meters and that is creating warehouse you don't need a lot of automation to call yourself a warehouse yeah right you need mm-hmm. floor space a couple of people and a truck that lives every day mm-hmm. so what we do as big blue is we automate this relationship between this large uh, international logistics provider and uh, smaller brands by one uh, automating the entire order flow and interaction through our apis and two uh, we defined and designed warehouse processes to be able to put 100 or 200 brands inside a single warehouse and um, for them not to... And for the for the brands, it feels like it's their own warehouse. And for the warehouse, it feels like there is only one brand. Oh, that's right. So 
Yeah, because I, I actually, I, I went onto your webpage today and I almost feel like I was very close to, to setting up my own logistics for, I don't know what I want to <laughs> sell, but it, it felt very streamlined, just the, the, the small part of the way that I, that I explored. And I, I actually wanted to, to talk to you about that. The, the, that seems to be one key area just based on, on the looking at your webpage that is highly, automated for sure the, the the experience for the seller and now you've told me about the the warehouses experience as well is one thing in terms of automation um and and actually it's one of the different differentiator uh big in the market is that we always seen the problem from the merchant's uh, point of view so we tried tackling the biggest pro merchant's problem first and the biggest merchant's problem first and remember, we are in mostly in e-commerce, so it's about you know timing. Was automation mm -hmm. of the order flow. So how do I have my Shopify order or my order on my sales channels automatically um, normalized and sent to the warehouse so that they can prepare it? And then how can I get that preparation information back so I can track the shipment? And so that's what we started doing: integration and automation of this order flow, integrating with the sales channel and integrating with the warehouse uh, management system to have a full uh, automated order lifecycle. And so in terms of tech, it was super light. And in terms of merchants, um, the initial value proposition would, uh, would be that you would still get this large scale warehouse, warehouses and maybe we would lie a little about how full they were at the beginning. And <laughs> that's how <laughs> we made it work. Right. How how did the warehouses react to you approaching? Like, yeah, how how did they react to that? Because it's different from what they're used to. I, I, I guess. Yeah, yes. So it's conflicting for them. I, mean, I think the the, the uh, it was at the beginning. Uh, the first point was that this is not a very uh, specific ID, right? Anybody could have this thought, you know, I could fit. And actually they do sometimes fit two customers in the same area. So they already do it. They just don't do it with hundred or two hundred brands, and so. Most of them have, have tried it already and had failed. So that's when we when we went and talked to them, they said, okay, if you're willing to sign the contract and pay for uh, the area, then uh, we will trust you. Uh, and, and and it wasn't that easy. You know, there was some convincing to do mm. uh, because we weren't anybody uh, at the time, right? We had no volumes, no customers. But we found that intermediate size warehouse that wasn't one of the big ones that we use today but was still not one of the small ones. So it could still have some scaling effect in there. And so having this intermediate warehouse and being good at convincing them um, made up sign our first warehousing contract. Right. And then, I mean, the, the issue and, and the, the struggle we constantly have with those uh, providers, but that's also our strength and what we, we, we learned to do over the, the years is to be able to integrate with them and to scale them fast because those kind of warehouses, they are used to a completely different model where on the first year you say, okay, during the next five years, the growth will be 10% yearly and mm. volumes will be this and that. And so they, they can get used to it. And maybe it's a bit difficult at the beginning because you know they learn to uh, manage your flows, but then they have learned it and it's almost flat for five years. And so they just... Um, uh, do the same thing over and over. But for right. us, growth is like 3x, 4x. At the beginning, it was even better, be, uh, bigger, right? And so it's always a challenge because 
um, from one month to the other, they think they have learned it and they have got it. Oh. And, but it's never enough, right? So that's the big challenge. And that's where automation comes in, right? right. How can you uh, take, um, remove most of the risks that come with scaling fast and automate them um, to just uh, de-risk the business and make everything work better? So what could be a risk that you've solved? So, so there, there are plenty, but um, so I give you a physical example. And that, that's mm -hmm. what's fun about Big Blue is that there are completely automated examples and, and physical world stuff that we need to fix too, right? It's operations. Right. So when, um, so our value proposition is you, you get to be in a like shared warehouse, but still you get to um, keep and even enhance all the personalization that you can um, give to your customers or brand. So personalized packaging, custom marketing inserts that you can put in the parcel, et cetera. And warehouses, they are used to having, uh, you know, one customer per area, right? So when you have one customer, you have one type of packaging or maybe five, and you have one or two marketing inserts that you randomly put in the packages. You don't care about them. But now imagine you have 200 of them. <laughs> what do you do? You can't put them randomly in the table anymore, right? Because if you do that, they will, you will have a high risk of having brand A get a marketing insight for brand B, right? Right. And this would be a huge problem because uh, uh, you, you don't want that to happen as a brand, right? No, you so, don't want to. So that's, that, that's one of the challenges we have to tackle and say, okay, uh, what what process can we invent? What kind of automation can we say? And we moved to having these papers on the table and just written instruction of what paper to put in what parcel to automating the preferences, moving that to our um, to our system. And then just when we send the order preparation um, uh, call through the warehouse's API or equivalent, we tell them, okay, this will be, you will add this and that flyer uh, or marketing insert, and you will have to scan them physically to confirm that you've added the right one. And so these are the, the kind of examples that, you know, it may seem simple, but at scale and to make it work in all warehouses, that wasn't, uh, wasn't easy. Yeah, because not only do you need to connect parcel from company A with marketing material from company A, you also need to do that in warehouse 15 that right. might not have anything to do with warehouse 2. And, and, and remember, we don't own the software that runs inside the warehouses for now. And so um, they have all different softwares too. So right. if we, we, have, we currently have five, I think five or six warehouses, and um, uh, we have three different softwares that we have to connect to and find a software solution to this problem. Right. How do you get the warehouses to accept new workflows? Like how do you interact with a stakeholder to tell and tell them that, I need you to change how you work because that's our model. Yeah, I mean, the, the good thing about working with those large uh, industrial providers, and uh, honestly, um, my answer will be uh, not as good as my uh, uh, co-founder because uh, that's him handling and handling it very well. But uh, the, the good thing about working with those big industrial providers is that they are used to this high level of customization, right? Mm -hmm. The bigger the uh, provider and the bigger the um they are normal customer. Uh, say, for instance, it could be um, a big uh, retailer, right? They have custom software that they need to use. Maybe they have an ERP that also does warehouse management. Uh, maybe they have specific processes because they handle food or something. So they are completely used to 
having different areas with completely different processes that are often dictated by uh, their customer. So that's really not an issue, and but that's only something that you get if you work with the larger ones, right? Because right. the smaller ones, they have more customers because they're smaller, and and uh, then they cannot just adapt every flow to to your needs. Right. So basically, the answer is that you 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 know you now have volumes enough to put some requirements on the bigger players within the warehousing space. Yeah, it's that we can we are able first we have volumes enough to be able to work with them, and since yeah. we work with them, these players are completely used to customizing everything for us. Right, and, and, and physically, you have to think of it physically, right? Mm-hmm. If, there are two walls and everything that happens between the or four walls, right? Right. <laughs> right, right. Yep. Everything that happens between the four walls is big blue stuff. So mm. there is no mix and match between their customers. And that's why we can put whatever processes we want because it's um, operators that only worked on big blue uh, processes. It's area that's only ded- dedicated to big blue and hardware and software that will be customized for big blue. How well defined have you? Your 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 processes must be very well defined and, and written down. Yeah, yeah, they are. But um, we what we prefer to writing down is automating, right? <laughs> because right. Uh, uh, everything that's written down, there is no um, um, computer way of uh, ensuring that it actually happens. Okay, and so that's why we automate. And I, I mentioned sometimes it's really silly action, like they have a barcode that they need to scan to confirm that they done action A or B, and that's how we track that it's already it's actually done, and we can force them to do it before moving on to the next step. After this short break, Matthias is going to go through how he selects cases for things that he wants to automate. Do you enjoy this podcast? There's one thing that you can do to help us out. If you pause the podcast and you send this episode to someone that you think would enjoy listening to it, that would really help us out. Thank you. All right. Now that you're back again, back to Matthias. How do you know, like you go to work tomorrow, how do you know which is the most valuable case for you to automate when it comes to your entire flow? Like you have a big company and you have, did you say six warehouses? Yeah. And you have, uh, I don't know how many brands. And then like, you need to find one use case that is the most important thing to automate tomorrow. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's mostly uh, about product management, you know, prioritization. And um, the way we do it is by... I mean, on operations, you usually when you need to automate something, you feel it <laughs> because <laughs> it hurts a lot before you actually do it. And I think it's important that it does hurt before you do it. Otherwise, you cannot be sure that uh, it's actually important. So that, to be honest, on the operational side, um, we that's usually how we work is that like we, um, we see how much is hurting right now. Uh, but sometimes it's also about opportunities. Say uh, we want to expand into personalization. And when we wanted to add custom packaging on top of everything we did already, well, that wasn't because uh, normal standard packaging was hurting, right? It was because there was a business opportunity and it made sense compared to our mission of 
you know, delivering that personalized experience for brands at scale to add another layer of personalization that was also completely table stakes for our market. So it's, it, oh, as always with product management, it's um, a balance between vision and what you can push and, uh, you know, pulling or having all these problems that you have to solve because the company is going to fail if you don't solve them. And as a company for us, um, for the last, part, the, the last four years, we have tried to be super merchant-centric. And what that means for this specific problem is that we rather solve a merchant's problem and automate something for our merchants than fix something for our internal teams un unless it really hurts the merchants, mm. right? And that, that's why we, we've thought for four years. And now um, we've reached a scale where we have to do both at the same time. Otherwise, it really hurts. <laughs> right. So you don't want to end up in a situation where you're sort of neglecting one side and that hurts. Right. And, and and sometimes it's just about unit economics, right? If you need to, if you have this issue that is taking like two support people full time to do uh, on a month and you, you scale time 10x, then these two people are going to be 20 people on your payroll very soon. And so you, 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 want, you don't want that to have this like people uh, slash problem uh, linear scaling. And not having this linear scaling means automation. So, looking to the the future, um, where are you and Big Blue going? Oh, it, I think the for logistics, what I often say is that first uh, we try to get out of the past you know it feels like logistics was stuck in the past for like 20 years and so only very few companies uh got out of it and the amazons of this world right and so we are i think the first two or three years of big blue was like yeah getting out of this past and we are still uh, bound by these some of these old systems um and getting out of them uh, will be our first target and is still our first target but at the at the same time um, the vision for Big Blue is to build this European network. And the reason, and not just, you know, be this French company, but grow out of it. So we opened in Spain, then we're opening this summer in the UK. And the idea is that there is a huge value for brands to expand in Europe, but it's not that easy, right? And for Americans looking at Europe, uh, first, they think it's one country, so right. <laughs> so they don't get the problem. But for Europeans, you know, um, like you and me, when we see that, we see expansion. And for brands, when we see, we see brands trying to expand into Europe, it's actually super hard. It, right. It's not just a matter of just translating your website and, and praying that it works. Often you have to open a new one, maybe change your branding, um, figure out how marketing works in that country, what are the and how do you localize all your experience. And part of localizing this experience is also figuring out logistics. And, and that's why we think uh, Big Blue has a big role to play here, is that if we have figured out all the logistics for you already, then trying a country becomes a lot faster and a lot easier. Hmm. And maybe you can try five in one year where you could only try one. And maybe out of these five, only one country will stick. And, um, these five years of experimentation suddenly become one, right? Right. And so, and, and, and even um, uh, beyond experimentation, it's also about uh, if this brand wants to exp 
to expand to a country, we have the playbook ready, we have the logistics ready, and they will still have only one tool to manage logistics now in two countries. And what that means is one tool for their support team, one tool for marketing. And um, the Big Blue Merchant application is really about you know centralizing and normalizing all this data that is about your business operations. And then even if we look even further in the future, um, we want these independent, seemingly independent countries to become a real network. And what that means is that maybe uh, you have an order for product A and B, and A is stored in the UK and B is stored in France, or maybe A is stored in, in Sweden and, and B is stored in Germany, right? And how do you manage that at scale as a small brand? And right. we want to answer that question, and we want to answer that question um, after the fact, but also proactively by helping you, you know, figure out where you should put your inventory. Hmm. Because inventory has a cost and you can have uh, millions of items just sleeping in different warehouses in the world. When it comes to operations within the warehouses, that's outside of your scope. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff happening with robotics, for example, in, in terms of uh, packing, shipping, uh, all of that stuff. Is that something you're looking into? Because even though you're separate corporate entities, you might benefit from these developments. And, and how do you sort of think around that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, that, that's why uh, the, the the relationship with warehouses is re really a partnership. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, we try to figure out what uh, makes it work for both of us. And scaling operations is good for them, it's good for us, you know, and, and so we are quite aligned on that. The last question that usually is answering is who makes the investments, right? Mm, <laughs> and right. So, and so, uh, but, and this has different answers depending on the situations. But yeah, we are um, automating some part of the flows, um, be it robots or conveyor belts or stuff like that, um, mm -hmm. by um, just looking at the flows inside the warehouses and looking at the obvious um, optimization areas. So this is definitely something that we're looking into. But at the same time, um, you know, robots, uh, even Amazon, as quite a small robot from footprint compared to the entire uh, to yeah. the entire fulfillment center footprint, and so you have to be careful at not putting. What we see is that in some situ specific situation, it may make sense for a specific kind of products that have specific kind of rotation um, rate, right? If you sell mm. three different products a lot, maybe there's different logistics than if you sell a million different products like Amazon. So. You got to be careful at what you're uh, investing time and money into and the ROI of that. And the smaller a company you are, the shorter term the ROI must be, right? Right. And so that's why we raise money. It's also, uh, we, we do that to have longer term thinking. But still, um, what we're seeing in logistics right now is that the, the players that invest the most in robotics are the huge companies that sometimes I would say maybe not all the time, maybe 30% of the time. Um, maybe it's because the logistics director thinks it's cool, right? Yeah. You see what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that that seems reasonable to me because it is cool. And I, I can see that, like, just as you buy a, a cool sports car in order to be yeah. cool, it, it can be nice to have a robot to be, yeah. For sure. And, and if you look at people in and jobs in general, um, I think a large part of the decisions uh, have this amount of, you know, 
the, the cool factor uh, right. in, in the decision. And that, I mean, that's uh, people are humans, right? Yeah. But so, but what you're saying is that you're at least trying to uh, resist the urge to be cool and instead look at the ROI and the business case. Yeah, we have to. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go, go. Yeah, we have to look at the business case. And since we have different brands, we've made different um, uh, use cases, different products. Um, the way we see things is that we are, the more we grow, the more we are specializing warehouses, right? So we started at only one warehouse. Then when we had two and now third, we decided that the number two would be for cosmetics only mm -hmm. and health and beauty overall. And number in three- In France. In France, yeah, sorry. Yes. And, and, and number three would be for fashion products only. Mm. And um, the more you specialize the warehouses, the more you have um, processes that are similar. And the more your processes are similar, the more it makes sense to automate them. Uh, right. So right. Uh, the, the, the more we are growing, um, the more we look into this kind of robotic solution for sure. So what's the biggest challenge for 2022 or 2023? So, so there are millions of challenges and um, it's what's really crazy about our field and what gets us excited every day is that we open a new challenge, there are 10 new challenges behind that we're hiding right. it just for us to, to tackle, right? So, uh, but going to the main challenges that, in the immediate future, well, there is this warehouse management uh, system, right? Uh, challenge that, that that is a huge challenge for the team, and then um, there is the challenge of just making it work at scale. Right? <laughs> and it seems easy when you say it, but um, efficiency at this scale and, and and being prepared to just move to the next uh, iteration of Big Blue requires a lot of work internally um, and. And then more uh, specifically, um, we are opening UK to just be super big there, right? UK is right. the e-commerce market in Europe, if I can still say Europe, right? <laughs> but, uh, uh, and, and it's a super exciting market for us, but also a super like, gigantic challenge to make, uh, to make Big Blue work there. So we're really excited about uh, launching there and uh, excited to, to make it work. Yeah. How small can your retailers be? Like what's the like when is it when doesn't it make sense anymore? Well, you, you can count the number of parcels your intern can uh, can manage, right? Some uh, kind of um and it's around maybe uh, um at, at at 10 15 per day, they only do that, right? So mm. um because you have to go to the post office, buy the supplies, uh, yeah. uh deal with the carrier, etc. And so um, that's, that means 300, 500, 500 parcels per year, per month, sorry, mm -hmm. is a good spot to, to move and externalize right. to Big Blue. And so that means 500,000 revenue yearly, pretty much right. for our brand. So from 500,000 to 50 million, 100 million, and that's when it makes sense to, to go for Big Blue right now. And if you're a small retailer and you want to get in contact with, with Big Blue? and use your services how how do you go about doing that so we are still a quite uh, human heavy company because logistics needs trust and trust is uh built by two things i think brand and uh humans <laughs> human interaction right and so while we are building out our brand we are adding humans in the loop to make sure everything goes smooth and especially specifically for logistics you build this trust during your onboarding so um, 
going back to your question, you contact us on the website, then you would talk to a sales representative that will take information about your business and, and figure out what's the best way for you to work with Big Blue. And mm-hmm. if that works, then you would get to sign your contract, get in touch with your onboarding specialist and just ship your products to one of our warehouses. And once you have shipped your products, in a couple of days, they are stored and you have this one-click integration with your sales channels and then you're good to go. So it's super simple, right? So we removed all friction to get separate logistics. And, and, something, and something you mentioned a, a few minutes ago was negotiating, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you grow in volumes, you get to renegotiate pricing in logistics. And so the way we tackle that so that brands don't even have to think about it is that we have automated discounts. So when you reach okay. certain th- thresholds, you get automated discounts. And it's like you there was a big blue team that you don't know about that renegotiating pr- prices for you. And that's how you want we want to think about, uh, we want you to think about big blue. Is like you're, we are your uh, hidden operations team. Right? right. Yeah. So you don't even have to interact with the, the warehouse. You just get the discount because Big Blue is the, the company that the warehouse is interacting with. Awesome. Right. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, sure. Fantastic. Matthias, I'm so excited to be talking to you. Um, do you have anything that you would like to like transmit to our listeners uh, or anything you'd like to ask about? anything please feel free to so i i i took a few minutes to think before before our discussion and so looking at some notes that i had maybe one other thing we didn't mention and what's exciting about automation in our world mm-hmm. is that um there for me there are two types of automation there there is the pure software automation where nothing can go wrong and there is physical world stuff right where you can you cannot expect things to go right. <laughs> it's the opposite. And uh, I think that's where automation really shines. And you, I mean, you need to expect all those things to happen, but also I, I'll take a very concrete example. So you ordered uh, your good from Italy and it was supposed to be here on Monday, but you still have no news. Um, the first thing that you will do is contact the merchant and ask them for news, and then they will contact Big Blue and ask uh, Big Blue for news, and Big Blue will contact the carrier and ask for news, right? And so that's a lot of manual um, work, and that's also deceitful for you as a buyer. So in that case, that's physical world stuff, right? The network packet in software is rarely late, and when it's late, it's 10 (laughs) milliseconds. right? Right. But the parcel, anything can happen to it. It could be destroyed uh, accidentally it can be lost it can be and so what we do in this case and is that um and, and i think what's so exciting about being building the experience for all brands is that we can detect uh based on our software and that's where ai can come in you know mm. going, going back to ai uh, detect these uh, parcels being late or these incidents right. early and then have proactive communication i think Beyond automation, it's, it's really about being proactive in the mm. physical world and detecting incidents that really makes the difference. Right. And you take, you can apply that to a lot of different parts of the physical industry, right? Like uh, uh, preempting and pre-detection of um, in the failure, like uh, engine failures, for instance, or parts that are going to fail for some reason. 
all of that you can detect using automation and AI. And I think mm. it's the big difference between physical and, and software worlds. Yeah. And I think this is something that I actually uh, we, we get back to in in all of our discussions. I would say, especially with people that are actually working with the physical realm, that something has happened in the last uh, I want to say ten to fifteen years, where we can actually use the software to affect the physical. We can actually do these predictions that you're talking about and make meaningful changes to how our world works, and that's really triggering it's really uh, a cool time to to be uh to be to be thinking about this stuff uh, yeah, but exactly. i think sorry go ahead. no 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 go and no no i, I was saying uh, i think what I, when i realized this the most is um i don't go often when but when i go to one of the big blue warehouses right and mm-hmm. i've been uh checking software doing product stuff for a year and then finally i get to go there and open my eyes and see all of this just materializing in front of right. me, right? All of this work, and that's so awesome. Fantastic. That's the reward for having the, dealing with the shit of the physical world, right? <laughs> right. Oh, it is great. Um, really excited to see where Big Blue is going and what's happening uh, the, the the coming years. It feels like you're in a very expansive mode, and that's you're, you're, you have very uh, high ambitions going forward. So that's going to be really, really, really exciting for me uh, to, to, to watch. And I think you've given our listeners a lot of cool things to think about when they're doing their own work uh, in, in automation. Uh, so thank you for that. That was a huge pleasure that we get to talk. And uh, yeah, hope we do that soon again. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Designing the Robot Revolution. New episodes every Sunday. Hope to see you back next week. This week's episode was produced by David Griffith-Jones. I have been your host, Jacob Magnol, and a special thanks to Big Blue and Matthias Griff. The title song, as always, was Oregano by Vendla. This song, that you've heard twice in this episode, was performed and written by The Fly Guy 5. <laughs>